Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. At the end of part three of his treatise on the basis of morality, Arthur Schopenhauer has a chapter, number 20, on the ethical differences of characters. And he says that he's going to begin with a fundamental question, which is going to complete this study of his. And he says, on what rests the great difference in the moral behavior of human beings? Why do some people act ethically? morally for the benefit of others trying to alleviate or prevent harm to them and why do other people act differently is it up to all of us to choose what we're going to do so that we be therefore uh, we become responsible for the actions as well as perhaps even the character that we develop and he's going to frame this in terms of a couple sub questions that fill this out so the first one is all right He's been developing this discussion of one fundamentally moral incentive or motive, compassion, mitleid in German. Why doesn't that sufficiently motivate all of us to do the right things? He says, if compassion is the fundamental incentive of all genuine, that is disinterested, justice and loving kindness, why is it that one man is influenced by it and another is not? So that's a really key question. And this goes to the heart of ethics. A lot of times people will say, oh, well, we just have to teach ethics and then people will behave well. And we know that's not the case. And in fact, we know people who teach ethics who are complete scumbags, exploiters of their graduate students in work-wise, sexual harassers, sex pests of different sorts. And we can go on and on and on, right? So if compassion is you know, available to all of us, why aren't we all acting on its basis? And then this raises another question. Okay, so, you know, some people are motivated by compassion, other people aren't. Can we take those people who aren't and somehow bring them over to the other side in some way? So he says, is it possible that ethics in discovering the moral incentive is also capable of setting it in motion? Can ethics transform the man who is hard-hearted into one who is compassionate and thereby just and humane? So this is a great question. And Schopenhauer's answer to this is not just no, certainly not. Why not? This is rather surprising, isn't it? The difference in characters, he says, is innate and ineradicable. So innate means it's born within us. It's born with us, you could say. And ineradicable means it cannot be done away with. You cannot destroy it. You cannot fundamentally change it. So a person who's hard-hearted, you're never going to make them not hard-hearted except perhaps in their actions, but you're never going to change their fundamental motivational structure. And he says, the wicked man is born with his wickedness as much as the serpent is with its poisonous fangs and glands, and he is little able to change his character as the serpent its fangs. And then he brings up a whole bunch of testimonies to say that bad people can't be made good. So he brings up Plato's Mino, quoting a passage from Theagonus, indeed by instruction a bad man is never 
never made good. And then in the Mino, he says, virtue does not come to us naturally, nor can it be taught, but whoever is endowed with it has it apportioned to him by divine ordinance and without intellect. Now, of course, is that Plato's actual position? No. I mean, just read the Republic. Right? We see that it is possible to teach virtue and to talk about virtue and to explain it. It's even discussed in, in the Phaedo as well. But Schopenhauer is being a little selective in his sources. He brings up Aristotle as well. And it's very interesting that the two texts that he brings up are not the Nicomachean Ethics and the Eudamian Ethics, but rather the Magna Moralia and On Virtues and Vices, which in our time, most Aristotle scholars consider to be spurious works, not by Aristotle but at least Aristotelian. He talks about the Pythagorean Archytas and he brings up a Stobaeus and what he has preserved. And the basic idea here is that everybody is telling us that no, you can't really change a person's character. He even brings up Georg Lichtenberg, who is a uh, writer a, a little bit before Schopenhauer. And Lichtenberg says, all virtue arising from premeditation is not worth much feeling or habit is the thing. And feeling or habit, habit seems to imply that we could change our characters. And uh, virtue from premeditation, you know, choosing to be a certain way, choosing to behave a certain way thoughtfully, Lichtenberg is kind of down on that. And then Schopenhauer goes on and he brings up Immanuel Kant. And, you know, Schopenhauer does take himself to be like the Kantian par excellence. And he says, Kant cleared up this important point through this great doctrine that intelligible character underlies empirical, the latter as a phenomenon appearing in time and as a plurality of action. So the empirical actions are what we get to see. They occur in time, but behind them is an intelligible character, which we cannot directly experience, but we can make sense of through understanding. And he tells us only in this way can we explain the rigid unalterabilities of characters that is so astonishing, but also familiar to anyone of experience. Ethical writers who promise to produce a system of ethics that will morally improve man and who speak of progress and virtue are always triumphantly refuted by reality and experience, which have demonstrated that virtue is inborn and cannot result from sermons. So it's something original, unchangeable, impervious to all improvement by means of a rectification of knowledge. And he brings up a very interesting point here. He says, if this were not so, and if we could improve people's character through morality and a constant advance of the good were possible, the older half of humanity would inevitably be considerably better at any rate on the average than the younger, unless the many religious institutions and attempts at moralizing were to have failed in their purpose. And then he says, there's so little trace of such an improvement that we hope for something good rather from the young rather than the old, the old having become worse through experience. So what we see empirically is that people just are the way they are. And then we trace this back to their intelligible character, the thing behind the appearances. And that's what we ascribe to them. Now he goes on and he talks about the three fundamental ethical incentives that by this point in the work, we're now very familiar with egoism, malice, and compassion. And he says that these are in all of us. So we all by human nature have these incentives, but we're not all the same in that respect. There's different, as he says, proportions. And these different proportions are incredibly unequal, he says. 
And then he goes on and says, in accordance with these, motives will operate on a human being and actions will ensue. So the mix of these different fundamental motives is our intelligible character, the proportions of them. And then that leads to the empirical motives within us that we might even describe and then to actions or lacks of actions, omissions. And so each person gets a different mixture of these. It could be that some people have the same proportions, right? And how do you see what the proportions are? Well, it's going to show inevitably and necessarily in their behavior. So he says, over an egotistical character, and what's an egotistical character? Somebody who's fundamentally driven, has a greater proportion of the, the incentive of egoism, only egoistical motives will have any influence. And those appealing to compassion or to malice will make no headway. Such a man will as little sacrifice his interest to vengeance on his enemy as to assistance to his friend. He's just going to be egoistic. Another man, very susceptible to malicious motives, will often not shrink from great harm to himself in order to injure others. For there are characters who, in causing suffering to others, find a pleasure that outweighs their own equally great suffering. And he says, in fact, experience is often shown they'll deliberately murder the man who has done them an injury and will then, to escape punishment, at once commit suicide. So egoism, malice, what about compassion? He says, on the other hand, goodness of heart consists in a deeply felt universal compassion for every living thing, but primarily for man, for susceptibility to suffering keeps pace with enhancement of intelligence. So the smarter the, the creature is, the more it can suffer. Human beings are the most intelligent, therefore they can suffer the most. So we need to pay attention to them. And he says that goodness of character will first refrain from doing any injury. A person is going to be driven by this if they have that compassion. And he gives some pretty startling examples here. And so he says, in consequence of this incredibly great inborn and original difference, everyone will be powerfully stirred by those motives to which he is predominantly susceptible. The motives of loving kindness, which are for the good character, such powerful incentives, can as such have no influence on a man who is susceptible only to egotistical motives. So some people are going to be compassionate and driven by compassion. Others, malice or egoism. And as such, there's not much we can do about that because we can't really change, as he's going to say, the heart. When we think about can we make people more susceptible to the motive of compassion, which, you know, why doesn't he ask that about malice or egoism? People are already egoistic enough and we don't want to make people more malicious, but we, we would like to make them more compassionate. It would be a better world, wouldn't it, if we could? And Schopenhauer says, you can't. You can't take a malicious person or an egoistic person and get them to be compassionate towards others in any real sense. You can get them to do actions that are in line with justice or loving kindness, you know, benevolence, philanthropy, but you're never going to get them to want to do that for its own sake. You can work on means, but as he's going to put it, the ends are already determined. What are the ends? Compassion, helping other people, preventing harm, injury, alleviating suffering, those sorts of things. Egoism, self-interest, malice, hurting other people, causing them distress or pain or things like that. Those are the fundamental ends. And you can tinker around with the structure of motivations by approaching their, as he's going to make this distinction, work on the head, but we can't actually 
change the heart. And he's going to say this at a couple different points, right? When we educate people with an ethical system or moral education, he says that the head becomes clear, the heart remains unreformed. The fundamental element, the positive factor is that which is inborn. Art can everywhere only help. And presumably it could actually help people be more adequately compassionate. They want to be compassionate. We steer them by means of, you know, affecting the head into better forms of that. We can't do much with an egoistic person other than appeal to their egoistic incentives. So we can show them that the ways in which they're going about things are actually counterproductive for them, but we can't make them care about other people for the sake of other people. We can appeal to a more rational way of doing this. And it's interesting because he talks about the American penitential system in this as well. The American penitentiary system, the intention is not to improve the heart of the criminal, but to put his head on the right lines so he will come to see that work and honesty are a sure, indeed, easier way to his own prosperity than our robust and knavery committing crimes, right? And he'll also say this about the malicious people. We can show that their actions cause suffering to them. This, you might actually say, well, wait a second, Schopenhauer. You just said that a, a truly malicious person doesn't care about what happens to themselves. They will accept their own suffering. They will accept death so long as they can make other people suffer. So, Maybe we actually can't do that much with somebody who is very malicious, but maybe if they're a mixture of egoistic and malicious, we could steer the egoist side and get them to stop hurting people, right? And he's going to say here, legality can be enforced through motives, not morality. We can remodel what we do, but not really what we will to do, to which alone moral worth attaches. We cannot change the goal which the will aspires to, which are these three fundamental incentives in whatever proportion, but we can change the path that follows their instruction, can alter the choice of means, but not that of the ultimate general aims. Every will determines these for itself in accordance with its original nature. So, you know, we're kind of driven by the character that we have this proportion of these motives. And you could say, as, as Schopenhauer considers, does that mean that moral responsibility goes out the window? Should we say, well, you know, that person's just a vicious bastard. Uh, they can't help being that way. And they're doing vicious bastard actions, malicious actions, cruel actions, envious actions. But that's because they're fundamentally driven by this proportion of malice in their character, which they were born with and there's nothing they can do about. And Schopenhauer says, no, that's besides the point. What it is that we praise or blame is exactly the character. Even though somebody doesn't have a choice in the kind of character that they have, some people's characters are good and some people's characters are bad. And we can call them good or bad, even though there's not an awful lot that we can do about it, other than try to minimize the harm that egoistic and malicious people are going to do by showing them that it's really not to their advantage to do that. And that's as far as we can get with it. So this is Schopenhauer's doctrine on characters and what they have to do with morality. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. 
You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.